Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. A look rightward today. We'll hear from Emily Jashinsky of The Federalist on the State of the Republican Party, and then from the writer Saurabh Amari, co-founder of Compact Magazine and purveyor of a hybrid left-right politics. First, a look inside the Republican Party, which may not be the most inviting of prospects, but sometimes you've just got to stare things down. Emily Jashinsky is culture editor at The Federalist and co-host, along with The Intercept's Ryan Grimm of CounterPoints. Emily Jashinsky. I think a lot of us who are not deeply involved in conservative or Republican politics were watching the speaker fight uh, with some confusion. Like, what was it all about? Um, it, uh, I think outsiders looked like a lot of egos just trying to make a point without much politics uh, behind it. Is that a correct reading? What's your reading of what was going on? That's definitely correct, a part of it. I think there was an element that was people recognizing, if, if folks remember what happened with Ted Cruz and the government shutdowns around like 2014, uh, there's an element of saying like, we can use these sorts of fights to raise our profile and become kind of heroes in the conservative movement in ways that are you know, beneficial for whatever kind of personal reason. Funny you should mention Ted Cruz because nobody likes that guy. <laughs> it's funny, you know, and and actually Chip Roy, who was one of the, uh, I think, more substantive leaders in this this fight last week, came from Ted Cruz's office. He actually ran from Congress after working for Ted Cruz. He worked in Congress for a while in, in Cruz's Senate office. Um, and so that's why the, the kind of Tea Party flavors that some people have picked up on were absolutely there. And really where this was coming from is the Freedom Caucus and kind of the right flank of the Republican Party in D.C. feeling like they're getting punched in the nose repeatedly by leadership over and over and over again, just given, you know, nothing, just little baby steps here and there. They'll, they'll be given the crumbs and then told to shut up and be happy. And so they wanted to make a point. And uh, it was confusing even from my vantage point as a you know conservative in D.C. It was hard to know what was going on because uh, the personalities were dominating. But when you were looking beneath the surface at what folks like Chip Roy were doing, they knew that because there was nobody else waiting in the wings, there was no other consensus candidate other than Kevin McCarthy. It couldn't be Steve Scalise. It Why not Scalise? I thought he was... People who name things, name Tim as a, a plausible alternative. Scalise doesn't have any trust really whatsoever with the right flank, whereas McCarthy has now had years to build that trust. It's an interesting thing. He's like friends with Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, while at the same time being friendly with very establishment members of Republican leadership and of the Re Republican conference on the House side. Scalise just hasn't done that. He doesn't have the trust at all of those folks, whereas you have people like Jim Jordan, Ken Buck, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and the Republican Party who voted for Kevin McCarthy, I think probably on the first ballot, um, that were entirely fine with McCarthy's leadership because they said, this is the lesser of two evils, essentially. This is, you know, you're never going to get anything close to your perfect conservative scenario. So you at least take somebody who's going to listen to you without creating too much bad blood in the process. And that was the concern is that all of this is going to burn bridges, et cetera, et cetera. But the chatter among conservatives here in DC is that McCarthy can't afford to burn any bridges right now. So he really really, really needs to keep the, the Freedom Caucus happy because of how narrow his margin is. And they recognized it and exploited it to their advantage. Green, now she's, a, she's a mystery. Um, she looks like a one-person splinter group. What's, what's <laughs> up with her? One of the interesting side plots to emerge from last week is uh, the divergence between Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene, where Lauren Boebert held out with Matt Gates way, way, way until the end. Um, and Marjorie Taylor Greene was pretty much always with McCarthy. She'd be sitting next to Gates and they'd be laughing and then they would both vote for a different speaker. But I think that was really crystallizing the two divergent paths here where, where Greene said, I'm friendly with Kevin McCarthy and I bet I can get on the oversight committee, which is exactly what ended up happening if I vote for him. And I can kind of advance my causes, my pet causes in Congress, um, by having a good relationship with Kevin McCarthy and not sort of excessively angering him. Uh, so it's sort of a cost-benefit analysis, a cost-benefit calculus there on her part. And honestly, she ended up with the slot she wanted. So it seems to have worked out. <laughs> Green looks to many people who are not on the right like a lunatic. 
She she looks to a lot of people on the right like that too. <laughs> okay, I'm uh, just wondering how seriously she's taken by the rest of the conservative forces in Washington. She's not taken very seriously uh, by most people in Washington. Period. But she has done a lot of groundwork to endear herself to the conservative movement in D.C. And I think there has been a shifting perception among some conservatives uh, in the Capitol that this is a person um, more than Lauren Boebert, honestly, that wants to be taken seriously, that wants to be doing work and not just sort of getting on on TV. I think she has made efforts to uh, make that impression. But I think she's somebody who's really popular with like the MAGA base, which is probably about 30 percent, somewhere between 30 to 50 percent of Republican voters, um, but probably closer to that 30 percent at this point. So I think she's really popular with those folks, but still has a long way to go uh, with the broader Republican voting population and with the the broader uh, conservative movement. And then what about views about McCarthy? Um, I, I gather some people see him as arrogant and not terribly likable. Is that correct? Yes, I think arrogant is probably the right word for it. Although his best skill as a politician is that he is, uh, he's not Bill Clinton, that's for sure. Nobody will probably ever be as politically talented as Bill Clinton, but McCarthy is very politically talented. Um, and you can see that just from the way he intentionally courted Jim Jordan when McCarthy lost out on the speakership back in 2015, um, after the Freedom Caucus forced John Boehner's resignation. He was right in line. And, uh, when Jim Jordan ended up dropping out, McCarthy ends up ultimately getting uh, the leadership after Paul Ryan leaves a couple years later. McCarthy very intentionally brings Jim Jordan into the fold, makes him the head of oversight, steps out on a limb when the rest of the establishment leadership was like, what are you doing? They were unhappy that McCarthy had tapped Jim Jordan, seen as this like firebrand type person in D.C. And because McCarthy made that inroad, that was his inroad to the Freedom Caucus. And it's just an impossible balancing act to be able to keep them happy keeping the establishment happy. And McCarthy's advantage is that he's personable. Um, He makes an effort to uh, know everybody's kids' names and to just sort of be that politician who, who gets along with everybody. So he has that going for him. Now, what about Trump? People are talking about this whole fight as a sign that the Republican Party, or at least the conservative wing of the Republican Party, is moving beyond him. What do you think of that? What's the status of Trump? Him wading into the speaker battle kind of late in the game, that was a big test balloon because it didn't seem to matter. And if it had immediately swayed everybody into the McCarthy camp, I think you would have seen there, you know, like with the Donald Trump of 2017, 18, 2019, um, before the pandemic and after he's elected, it was like the Republican base was hanging on his every word. He was presiding over a a reasonably good economy. He was uh, taking care of different pet priorities of the right. And so when Donald Trump said something that, that mattered a whole lot, that was, I mean, he was the gatekeeper basically, to the right. And it didn't work out that way last week. I'm sure it had a little bit of sway. um, But there's this very, now it should be a famous image. If there's ever coverage of the speakership battle in history books, there should be the image that one of the photographers in the gallery caught of Marjorie Taylor Greene with her cell phone open to DT. There's a call (laughs) from DT. You can see it on her cell phone. She's holding it out for one of the Freedom Caucus members to talk to Trump. The other member doesn't want to take the call. That really spoke volumes about Trump's waning ability to utterly control the sales. You know, he was in total control just a couple of years ago, and uh, that's not the case anymore. Well, how much damage did the elections do to him? That's a big part of it. Um, I, yeah, I actually think that's a, a huge part of it. There are a lot of folks who are unhappy with how he handled COVID, for instance. Um, that's something we've seen Ron DeSantis kind of pick up on, just in the fact that he he really is emphasizing his own handling of COVID um, in a way that seems to suggestively be contrasting with Trump. Uh, so I think that was part of it. I think the election was part of it. I think a lot of people, it, just normal Republican voters, were really upset about what happened on January 6th. That doesn't mean, and what happened before January 6th between the election and January 6th. It doesn't mean that they're not also unhappy with the way the media and the intelligence community has has handled January 6th, but uh, it also hasn't helped Trump stock uh, because people aren't hanging on his every word. Um, he's not on Twitter anymore. There's just, a, I think, an exasperation with a lot of folks uh, when it comes to him. I'm certainly no fan of Donald Trump, but I, I can see he's got some skills. He's very clever in a lot of ways, Very um, <laughs> a very skilled psychological terrorist. Um, he's really good at Twitter. Um, he's good with the, uh, the witticisms and, and the cruel nicknames. I don't see DeSantis as having any of those skills. Uh, he doesn't seem to have the charisma or the disruptive uh, political talents that Trump had. 
or has. Um, what do you think of that? Yeah, I don't think it's even close between the two of them. And I think it's a really good point. Um, one of the things that I wrote immediately after Trump announced his uh, he was running again is that you can't not be empathetic to people who voted for Donald Trump and don't want to vote for Ron DeSantis. They voted for Donald Trump because they have zero trust left in the political system. They don't trust a single politician uh, because they've been screwed over time and time and again, whether it's the recession, whether it's COVID, whatever it has been. Um, they feel like they have been trampled on and they don't trust anyone. Maybe it was the Iraq war that did it for them. Maybe it was Afghanistan that did it for them. Maybe it's uh, spending in Ukraine now. Uh, they just feel like they've just gotten bulldozed by politicians and by corporations and the establishment. Some of them are Republicans, some of them are independents, some of them are Democrats. But Trump tapped into those people in the Rust Belt in particular who voted for Barack Obama on the mantle of hope and change. And Trump inspired some hope among that coalition of people. And they're not going to vote for Ron DeSantis, A, because of the charisma, and B, because he's a politician. He came up through the political class. And I mean, I think he has some advantages as a politician. I think maybe he'll get some of those voters. But you will never be able to replicate what Donald Donald Trump did specifically because he was not a politician. Um, that was just an advantage that nobody else can tap into. I'm speaking with Emily Jashinsky of The Federalist. Now, to those of us who are not part of the right wing, those of us who are not connoisseurs of, of that uh, political tendency, <laughs> look um, to this fight between the Freedom Caucus and the, the broader Republican uh, Caucus in Congress and wonder, what's the difference between these people? What are they fighting over? Mm, it's an interesting question, um, because I think when the media depicts Kevin McCarthy as sort of an enabler of the Freedom Caucus or whatever it is, or enabler of Trump, um, any of those things, like an extremist, far right, whatever it is, it's always funny to hear uh, as a conservative, because if Kevin McCarthy and in general Republican leaders had it their way, there would be a whole lot more bipartisanship, but not bipartisanship on things that Republicans would be happy about um, and and not bipartisanship in the, the sense that even some anti-establishment liberals and Democrats would be happy about either. There would be a lot more sort of corporate glad handing. Um, there would be a lot more power given to those folks in the intelligence community. Um, but it's because Kevin McCarthy has been pushed so much uh, by the Freedom Caucus folks that, again, they feel like the establishment is spitting in their face. And to some, some extent, it's true. They are taken for granted and they realize that they had a, a margin where they could say, listen, we're not doing we're, we're doing single topic bills now. We're not doing omnibuses. We need to have 72 hour reading periods. I was talking to Representative Ro Khanna from California today uh, with my colleague Ryan Grimm over at CounterPoints. And uh, Ro Khanna was saying some of this stuff is good. It's not all good. You can't paint it with a broad bush and say it's all bad. He had a lot of complaints about certain things. But some of this stuff is is not what the political establishment wants, um, because they want to be able to pass, you know, fat corporate giveaways with no transparency. And some of this was really pushing against that. So I, I think they ended up getting some concessions in the direction of transparency and undercutting the power of the speaker, um, which Nancy Pelosi had intentionally consolidated. She's an incredibly shrewd politician. Uh, whatever you think of her, very shrewd politician. She consolidated intentionally a lot of power in the speakership. And a lot of this was trying to undo some of that. So what do they want? Yeah, so the motion to vacate is a huge thing. Um, that's how uh, it sounds like a wonky procedural thing, and it is, but that's how John Boehner was forced out of office back in uh, 2015 because Mark Meadows and Jim Jordan kind of led a coup. And uh, so immediately Nancy Pelosi got rid of the motion to vacate, uh, which allows members to call for snap votes on leadership, on speakership. Um, and Kevin McCarthy actually had that margin that you need to call for a snap vote winnowed from five people. He already didn't want to do the motion to vacate. He, he agreed to it. Then he got it down from a five person necessary to call for the snap vote to one person necessary to call for the snap vote, which is the last thing House leadership <laughs> wants. Uh, they also called for the church style committee, which has gotten a lot of attention into problems in the intelligence community, abuses of the intelligence community along the lines of some of the stuff we've seen coming out of the Twitter files and the Russia collusion investigation and all of that. Uh, there's a lot of like kind of procedural stuff. Um, like I said, the no more omnibuses, single voting bills. They're going to be wielding the debt ceiling, saying basically, we we will threaten brinksmanship if bills aren't to our liking when it comes to the sort of fiscal requirements. That's one thing. If you're in the House, you control the purse strings. So they kind of know that's where the power is. They ended up getting a, a literal laundry list. 
I would describe it as a Tea Party fever dream. <laughs> Some of the stuff is has not even been on the radar since like 2014. And it's back and they got all of it because Kevin McCarthy was really the only choice Republicans had. You wrote in uh, your Federalist piece the other day, there were those who fret this laundry list of demands will create chaos. But those who fret about that are probably correct. But a dysfunctional house got us here, and there's no functional way to leave dysfunction. That sounds almost Tegelian in the dialectic. <laughs> <laughs> but chaos, is that a good thing? Right, yeah. It's almost the like uh, heighten the contradictions uh, Lenin take on things. There is no way to take the power that was consolidated in the speakership and the power that's sort of been consolidated in D.C. in general and undo it without there being chaos because the system is running a certain way and it's really hard to just put the genie back in the bottle. It's almost impossible to do without having uh, some systems kind of upended. And I think that's that's what will happen. Now, it's absolutely true that when you have a one-person motion to vacate in the rules package, that is going to be a mess. Um, it may be the case that Republicans handle it in the same way Nancy Pelosi handled the squad, where you know they have massive differences, but decide to be more deferential and um, sort of the Marjorie Taylor Greene approach where you're negotiating quietly, getting what you want, et cetera, et cetera. I doubt that's what we're going to see from this Republican conference, uh, given the way the speakership vote was handled. So uh, that in particular, that's a huge, huge albatross around McCarthy's neck, and it could really slow things down. And I think Republicans have to be very careful purely from a PR perspective, let alone a substantive one, at being seen as not getting the necessary, the absolutely essential business done for public relations sake when you can have Lauren Boebert or Matt Gates just calling for snap votes on leadership at their whims. That's a serious problem for Republicans. We're going to confront the uh, the debt ceiling and possible government shutdown and no, I don't think it's really going to happen, but it was the, the subtle threat of treasury default. Um, how do you see that playing out? Yeah, it feels like, again, a throwback to the Tea Party years and that Republicans are blindly stumbling into this conversation about entitlement cuts in this Paul Ryan sense, but without having done any post-Trump reflections about spending cuts. It doesn't matter where you're slashing spending to. Obviously, again, it's like the dysfunction thing. Even if our agencies are dysfunctional with these big budgets, if you cut their budgets, this is something we've seen at the IRS, cut budgets, as they correctly argue, leads to audits on the middle class. Uh, and so I don't want to throw more money at them either, because I think that would uh, lead to more audits on the middle class. But you have to be, I think, more thoughtful and take a more thoughtful approach and not just slash and burn approach to all of these things. It's not what people want to hear. And frankly, it's not the most effective way to go about any of this. And I have seen a surprising amount of that, just talking like Trump never happened, like it's 2012 again. We're doing the Romney campaign messaging again. And that to me is, again, that is a real danger for Republicans because I think they are willing to go into things like debt ceiling negotiations and, and act like it's 2014, um, when in fact we've had almost 10 years now to lay bare the level of of suffering around this country. Trump called it American carnage and Republicans defended that. Um, so maybe talking about Social Security um, in the middle of that uh, without dealing with the other stuff first is, is a bad idea, you'd think. But I feel like I actually haven't heard a tone that's uh, particularly reflective on that. Social Security and Medicare cuts seem like a political suicide. They absolutely do. Yeah. Okay. So um, <laughs> they're really <laughs> stepping into a, quite a minefield here. Yeah. And you'd think they would know that. Again, after you sort of rally around a president who talks about American carnage, and most of the Freedom Caucus is supportive of Donald Trump for the most part, and uh, defensive of the way that he talked about the middle class in this country, the way that he talked about middle America, the way he talked about uh, dying industries and uh, dried up factory towns, and just, again, like uh, this carnage in the middle of the country that's really, uh, I mean, I'm from Wisconsin, I've, I've seen it. And I thought we came to a point where we, we recognized it, you know, that maybe talking about the 47% or anything like that in the way that Mitt Romney might have talked about things is a bad idea, not just in terms of public relations, but in terms of substance. Um, but so far, I haven't been overly confident from what I've heard that they're going to tackle that more effectively. What is the base of the Freedom Caucus style of politics? Um, I read a paper about the 2016 election that described a lot of Trump's base as people who are locally rich but nationally poor, as small business people in non-metropolitan areas, for example. And that's who I imagine uh, is behind a lot of this Freedom Caucus style politics. Um, what's your analysis? What is their, their base in, the, in society? 
I think that's exactly right. And you can actually see that in some of the January 6th defendants. If you look at their livelihoods, how they make money, uh, I think that description was pretty much, I mean, you, you really saw that, but there's this other chunk that is now increasingly working class for the Republican Party, but not just for the Republican Party. I mean, that's why John Fetterman won is because if you're the Republican Party, you can't just put up Dr. Oz and expect to perform with the same margins as Donald Trump in Erie County. It's not going to happen. Um, but there are those folks that in Erie County, for instance, would would vote for Donald Trump and would perhaps uh, love what some of the disruptive bomb throwing the, the Freedom Caucus is doing. Uh, they would love to see more of that. And uh, th I think so. It's it's kind of a, a combination of both of those things. You do have some really disenfranchised people who see the disruption, who see the chaos and say, if my other option is functioning corruption, I'll take dysfunctioning corruption <laughs> at this point because the trajectory we're going on is not working. It's not working for me. I don't think it'll work for my kids. Um, so I think it's kind of a combination of those two uh, different groups. And that's also really hard for the Republican Party because one of those groups by the way, likes the 47% rhetoric. It's not a huge group of the country, um, but they say, I worked my butt off. Um, I built this business. I was middle class. I didn't come from the bottom to the top, but I worked really hard. And they like that kind of stuff. And the other half uh, despises that kind of stuff and it threatens their existence. So it's a really tough balance uh, for Freedom Caucus folks and for Donald Trump too. Is there any lesson for people on the left in this? I mean, people are talking about, you know, the force the vote movement from a while back. I don't think a lot of people on the left really want chaos. It does seem that some of the, the Freedom Caucus does want chaos. Um, what, do, what do you think of that? Yeah, I think that's a really good point because that's the key difference in that if you're the squad and you cause chaos, it probably looks worse for your voters who want to see government functions running smoothly and want them to have more money, more funding and be sort of more robust. Whereas if you cause chaos and disruption on the right, your voters say, hey, this bloated government is leading to tyranny. We want less of this. So that's the fundamental thing. If you're stopping the government from functioning on the right, it's very different than if you're stopping the government from functioning on the left. But I do think there are tons of lessons for the squad and the force the vote movement, just because when you you recognize that there is no other option, if it was Nancy Pelosi or Hakeem Jeffries, the squad, if they were interested uh, back then, I'm not saying this would have been a guarantee, but I think they could have pushed way further than they did. And that's one lesson of this. That's not to say it would have all worked out hunky dory. Um, but I think one lesson of this is when there is nobody obviously waiting in the wings, that's a consensus vote, you can make a lot more trouble uh, than I think they realized. That was Emily Jashinsky of The Federalist. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. That was some of the second movement of what was once attributed to Joseph Haydn, the St. Anthony Chorale, performed by the Bamberg Wind Soloists. It's probably not by Haydn, but Brahms did a famous set of variations on it, thinking it was, one of which we'll hear at the end of the program. In recent shows, I've been covering the so-called post-left and new-new right, including some scary things like the National Conservatives, a reactionary authoritarian formation, and odd left-right hybrids. But I haven't interviewed any of the principals, just reporters and critics. Now here's one of the principals, Sara Bamari. Amari was born in Tehran and spent his early years there. His parents were bohemian artists and he was somewhat insulated from life under the mullahs. When he was six, his parents divorced and soon after, his mother moved them to Utah, joining an uncle who was already established there. As a teen, he cycled through Nietzsche and Trotsky, even spending some time in Socialist Alternative, before taking up residence on the right, writing editorials for the Wall Street Journal and then the New York Post. His right-wing politics got quirkier over time, and last year he was one of the founders of Compact, an odd niche webzine, which is surrounded by rumors of financial backing by the scary techno-reactionary Peter Thiel. Another of the founders was Edwin Aponte, a self-described Marxist and social conservative, who left soon after the launch for murky reasons. 
He told Catherine Joyce, who was on this show a few weeks ago, that the breaking point was Dobbs, the Supreme Court's appalling decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. It's not clear what Aponte expected when he entered into a joint venture with a pair of conservative Catholics, but he didn't want to talk about the matter when I asked him. And Amari didn't want to talk about it either. Amari's also rather coy about just how much authoritarianism it would take to achieve his ideal moral order. More discreet than his friend and comrade Adrian Vermeule, a law professor at Harvard who is explicit about his eagerness to use state power to impose a moral order congruent with the reactionary side of Catholicism. I've invited Vermeule to be on the show, but he's refused. I should say there's a lot I disagree with here, but it can be a good idea to talk with people you disagree with. Sara Albamari. You um, have what many consider to be a pretty unusual mixture of a social democratic political economy with a pretty conservative social moral philosophy. And I want to explore the contradictions of that uh, for a bit. Or the inner coherence. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yes, <all> right. <laughs> or from, from contradiction to uh, the higher truth. You see neoliberalism as undermining the family. I used to think that it did until I came across Melinda Cooper's argument in the book Family Values that the neoliberals looked to the family to uh, take up the responsibility for income support, the things that the the welfare state did or could do that they were trying to undo and reverse. So that in that sense, family values and neoliberalism go together in Cooper's argument. Do you think that's true? Do you think that the family um, is really a necessary foundation in a world of neoliberalism? I think that's, that that is not a trans-historical fact about neoliberalism insofar as you can define neoliberalism as a sort of an ideology that attempts to impose itself on the whole world, but rather that was the worldview of liberalism's initial political enactors, namely Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, right? So Thatcher, I mean, famously said, what is society? But what's often forgotten is she didn't say just that there are individuals. She said there are individuals and there are families. So I think there's something to that that Cooper argument that a class of neoliberal politicians in seeking to enact this worldview saw it, whether whether as a matter of uh, publicity, of how to legitimize it in public eyes, or genuine conviction or some combination of the two, that the family should take the place of this behemoth monstrosity of the welfare state that social Democrats, New Dealers, Christian Democrats, and others had built. So there's something to that, but I think there's limits to it, but in the sense that the bottom line is that, in fact, it has come to undermine the family. And in the classical and Christian tradition, again, you cannot just look at the family as this free-floating thing and just preach its virtues in terms of culture, just to say, well, it's good to get married, you know, you should have children, family stability, blah, blah, blah. You can say all that you want. But if the material substrate of society is such that men and women can't take the risk of forming a family, of having children, if if they do have children, they're constantly assailed by irregularity in your work schedule or wage precarity, etc., then it erodes family life. So just to answer the Melinda Cooper objection, it's true that individual neoliberals in presenting the argument presented it as family substituting for state. But in practice, the erosion of state support for family also has ended up eroding the family, something to which I can point to, and you probably as well, dozens of sort of social science indicia of that, right? declining rates of marriage, declining rates of family formation, declining rates of total fertility, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Now, the other side of it, of course, is the social conservatism. You're a little ambiguous about how we're going to achieve this moral society you dream of. It sometimes seems rather authoritarian, like you have a set of moral values that you think the state should enforce. You describe Adrian Remule, who's very frank about these sorts of things as a friend, and you seem to uh, have a lot in common with him. Is it going to require some kind of authoritarian social order to impose the morality you dream of? The answer that I would give is that every society authoritatively shapes a morality. Obviously, we just talked about neoliberalism. Neoliberalism has an account of the human person. It's a moral account. It's a normative account. Now, I think, you know, subjectively, I think it's deeply immoral, but it, it has an account of the human person, which it it enforces. And it does that through a variety of coercive mechanisms. Now, it's true that under neoliberalism, it's not the government that coerces you or shapes you, or not solely the government, but also like myriad private actors. And the fact that there's a myriad private actors is one of the sort of bedeviling qualities, because you, you can't 
turn to any one actor and say, who are you? What is it? What is this system that's doing this to me? Nevertheless, you feel its effects. It is impossible to partition statecraft and soulcraft, to use George Will's uh, old terminology, which he's since abandoned, but I think it's useful. To govern is to shape a kind of human being one way or another. I want certain outcomes. So for example, I want it to be easier for people to form families. And so that might mean various tax benefits, do family policy, uh, paid leave, although that's actually a kind of boon to employers in many ways, but we don't get, we need to get into the sort of nitty gritty. But the point is that you're enacting a certain policy and getting a kind of moral outcome. You're shaping a kind of society. Is that authoritarianism? If it is, I mean, then, you know, it, you know, in a sense, the term is a little meaningless. Does it mean, however, like, what people typically picture as dictatorial regimes and a departure from the institutions of American life. I've certainly not called for that. I know Adrian hasn't. I mean, he's a great fan of the administrative state, unlike the overwhelming majority of the American conservative movement looks at the administrative state that grew out after the Wilson era as like this illegitimate imposition on democracy. He doesn't see that. He sees the administrative state as a democratic response to oligarchy. If you say, well, if you have a moral vision and you seek to enforce it, therefore you're an authoritarian, I would accept that, but I would just then turn that to almost any society has this element of morally shaping human beings through law. So we won't have a bunch of uh, Catholic morality police on the beat. Okay, Catholic, no. <laughs> I mentioned the morality police on the beach. In the, uh, I don't want to misrepresent my views either. So for example, I would sort of seek to restrict uh, at least young people's access to pornography. That's a kind of traditional, if you want to pin Saurabh down as a social conservative, I, I support something like that. Now, there are plenty of feminists who would go along with me for different reasons. You know, they may not use the sort of Catholic-ish language that I would use for a measure like that. They would talk about the degradation of women or objectification of women, commercialization of something that should not be commercialized, et cetera, et cetera. And I would actually go along with a lot of those arguments. In fact, in my last book, I have a chapter devoted to Andrea Dworkin. It's a sort of an homage to Andrea Dworkin as a crypto-social conservative. You um, write several places, talk several places about drag queen story hours, which seems to be something that really gets people on the right upset these days. What precisely is it about those and more generally the blurring of gender boundaries that uh, get you also upset? I live in midtown Manhattan and I happen to, as, as, as a New Yorker profile of me noted, he lives ironically above a drag bar lips right yeah, yeah are there ever any stories about like you know <laughs> writer sir Abamari showed up at lips with a pitchfork you know you you have not seen stories like that because i haven't done that there is a legitimate concern about children being exposed to this sort of garish cartoonish account of what femininity is there is an element that used to be sort of recognized in, in the social sciences of what you would call sort of transvestic fetishism in drag. Now, it's pretty innocent. I mean, there are other things that you could describe as fetishistic that are sort of more hardcore, but there is that element there. And it's kind of funny and adult, you know, adults go for brunch and, you know, there's, I've never called for banning those. But I think there's something about children being exposed to this that strikes a lot of ordinary Americans, not just me, as being sort of unhealthy or weird. That said... I've become a little bit sick of essentially culture-only culture warring on the right. That is, I always thought that this was a sort of opening to then talk about the stuff that we talked about in the, earlier in the show, right? That there's things about the American political economy that undermine the very things that American conservatives claim to hold dear and that go to the root of these issues. Over the past year or so especially, I've noticed that now for a lot of them, Culture warring was enough. That's all they sought to do. And so I'm, I've become a little bit um, disenchanted or disillusioned with that element of the new right. Right? There was this movement of the new right, of which I'm uh, sort of cast as a part of or as an intellectual architect of or whatever. And even when I wrote about things like Drag Queen Story Ever, I sort of married it to a deeper critique of neoliberal economics, etc., of free trade, of you know, devastation wrought by free trade. And I always thought that that was part of the program. And what I've noticed is a lot of the sort of neo-populist, neo-right types are collapsing back into conventional conservatism with just this sort of edgy, own the libs, 
veneer, you know, over things like Drag Queen Story Hour, the teaching of the 1619 Project and public school classrooms and so forth. Critical race theory has disappeared from that discourse. It's mostly about Drag Queen Story Hour now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, it's not something I campaign on. It's very interesting that I'm like, I, I may go to my grave with like this one polemic I wrote that partly involved Drag Queen Story Hour. It'll like passages from that will end up in, in various obits if if I'm ever written an obit about and that kind of irritates me because that's so the range of issues that I care about are wider. Now, all they do is like, I guess, yeah, to a lesser extent, critical race theory, but mostly just sort of like, uh, you know, our kids getting exposed to queer, queer culture, which, again, I think exposing kids to sexuality of any kind at any age is inappropriate. And I think that used to be an American consensus. Are you referring to the um, David French article against David? French? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's yeah. yeah, you said in that that there's no way of avoiding the cultural civil war. It must be fought. But do you still feel that way? I think there is something irreconcilable between ideological liberalism that seeks to demolish every barrier against autonomy and increasingly in its vernacular would have trouble even forbidding things that are just genuinely abhorrent. Like if you can determine, for example, that kids can consent to X, Y, Z, um, that consent structures are a lot more complicated than you think. And you can marshal, so, you know, psychology and social science and cognitive data to show that consent. What is consent really? Blah, blah, blah. You problematize consent. Then you sort of like erase one last barrier involving sort of children um, and their encounter with sexuality. Insofar as there's this element of ideological liberalism that's relentlessly transgressive, people will rebel against it, and uh, they are rebelling against it. And, and, it's, and it's kind of unfortunate because, as I said, in part, it's being that rebellion, um, which I'm not legitimate anger, I think, is being now sort of harnessed for just restoring the pre-populist conservatism of like 2014-13. We're for small government, low taxes, abolish entitlements, but also we're really based and we oppose like Drag Queen Story Hour. That is playing out. And um, I think it's it's very unfortunate for those of us who agree with the left on many political economic issues. But that there is that element of irreconcilability. I think people, that's why it's just a dangerous game to play. People don't want their children, especially if it's very young children, they don't want them exposed to some of the stuff. And there's something in liberalism that can't resist it's one of those ideologies that has a sort of ever-receding horizon, like you know, emancipated ourselves from X, and now we're going to emancipate ourselves from the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Every kind of traditional or natural barrier has to break down. That's very dangerous, and I think it's, it does set up culture war scenarios. Do I like that, that famous, infamous sentence with its, as I always say, it's a sort of mix of Iranian militancy and, um, and Thomism? <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't like that sentence. Um, yeah, but you said that I do. No, and if, if I were, if I were writing it today, I would probably, uh, I would phrase it differently. I'm speaking with Saurabh Amari, a founding editor of Compact Magazine. Donald Trump, uh, you have endorsed him. Uh, you uh, not only uh, his politics, but also the way he broke things up. The fact that he um, really disrupted the existing order uh, seems to appeal to you. Um, what's your uh, thoughts on Trump now? First of all, what I liked about Trumpism and what I also liked about a lot of analog movements on both sides of the Atlantic and of the left and the right, Syriza when it was more militant in Greece or Brexit, law and justice in Poland, etc., is a determination to restore the political as such. That is, that there are elements of our common life together that involve opposition between the interests of different classes and groups of people. And as you know, liberalism, and especially neoliberalism in the way it tries to transfigure political life in the image of the market, removes these things from the realm of genuine political contestation and turns them into matters of expert opinion or market rationality, et cetera, et cetera. Vast swaths of kind of our common life together had become incontestable politically. Both parties, center left, center right, are you know kind of relatively for free movement of goods, service, and labor. They're all sort of for, you know, American hegemony, blah, blah, blah. And so that was becoming insufferable. And 
the populace responded by throwing up these characters, these populists, including Trump, but also Brexit. And like I said, I named a bunch of other movements of the kind. And what's valuable in them is this reassertion of the political that no, you know, immigration should be subject to political determination or no, you know, free trade should be subject to political determination. We should be able to contest these things rather than just say, well, the market says such and such or the experts say such and such. That's what was valuable about populism. I still think that if you want a GOP that is at all sensitive to these issues, Trump is still the one, minimally so. You know, I mean, despite the fact that he couldn't enact any of it in office when he was in office, the only thing in it he had actually enacted was a Paul Ryan engineered tax cut. But the fact that he was sort of talking about this stuff or saying that we're not going to cut social security or I'm not going to let people die on the street, there was some value in that. And insofar as I can still be cast as a creature of the right, you may say you're totally a creature of the right. I think I'm sort of more complicated than that. But at any rate, insofar as I care about the right, I don't want a restoration of pre-Trumpism. I don't want a restoration of Paul Ryan ideology, but now with a sort of uh, veneer of we're going to fight the culture war. That's about as much value I see in Trump in terms of, um, but populism as a whole is sort of uh, losing steam. I think various sort of establishment forces are reasserting themselves. Trump is profound immoralist. So somebody who's so as wedded to a moral agenda as you are, was he just the imperfect vessel of something larger than him? Yeah, I mean, every, every political constituency makes compromises in terms of who they support. A certain kind of goody-goodyism of civility so-called civility can be used, especially I say this as someone on the right who is at least familiar with this talk of civility or the kind of the decorum that one expects of blah, 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 is used to, again, to suppress political conflict, right? So instead of battling things at the level of was the Iraq war good or not, you say, but you know, you know, George W. Bush was, you know, was a good man. And that's the kind of type of MSNBC slash conventional conservative pundit, they both have this tendency to sort of, well, okay, but a million people died, trillions of dollars were wasted, what the hell became of the Iraq project? Why did we do this? They say, but, you know, but he says it in such a bad way. He said, you know, he, George W. Bush was a good, John McCain was a good man. As someone who cares about the fate of the right, do I care more about a politician who's willing to say, hey, you know, actually, the Iraq war was a disaster, as Trump repeatedly said, or no, I'm not going to cut Social Security, no matter how much, you know, the called for growth and these other sort of conservative agitprop groups press for it. But he happens to be a sort of vulgarian. To me, the sort of deeper morality lies in condemning the Iraq war. But uh, Trump never really broke from neoliberalism, at least in you know, his economic and tax policy. Yeah, as largely so, right? I mean, he okay, so he definitely did in terms of legislative in, uh, enactments. He only had managed the Ryan tax cut. The China tariffs stuck, and of course, they were considered horrible and by all the good and the just. Thought this is that would this would collapse the global economy in this dire prophecies. But today, the Biden administration has not altered a single bit in terms of those tariffs. Deglobalization is becoming a mainstream talking point now. The idea that we should have sort of more regional supply chains, that there should be an element of national self-sufficiency, reshoring manufacturing so that if the next emergency happens, your supply chains don't snap and you're you're not left at the mercy of a country half a world away for the most basic kinds of goods. That stuff become, has become kind of mainstream. Trump at least deserves partial credit for that. I think some of the credit belongs to, frankly, the COVID, where it, it revealed the limits of just-in-time logistics and supply chains and so forth. But he also made it like he just pressed it so much that it, it's become a part of the elite consensus. I mean, that, that's something. That's something. I mean, certainly like my former uh, employer, the Wall Street Journal editorial page, have been and would be very unhappy with these developments. And they're, that's like neoliberal central. Bob Bartley's probably rolling in his grave right now. Now, you said you're not a national conservative because you're not a nationalist, um, but you also talked about restricting immigration. So uh, where do you stand on the nationalist, internationalist spectrum? No, I'm definitely not a NatCon in the sense that it's it's silly to me to 
elevate nationalism or the nation state as the highest good of political life. In a Catholic frame, there are problems that are best solved at a, at a global level. And so that requires a global answer. And so the idea well, if, of, if there was ever an international institution, it's the Catholic Church. Sure. And, that, and that's, another, that's actually another uh, fact in this, and that nationalism arose in part as a reaction to the Catholic Church, which was much more associated with the older world of large multinational empires. Their idea of belonging was a lot more capacious and, and generous than the late 18th century through the 19th century liberal nation states, essentially national bourgeoisies going around and sort of carving up the world into smaller states. And then you have to say, well, who is a citizen of this democratic state and who doesn't belong? And eventually it devolves into sort of let's pull out the calipers to sort of measure people's skulls to see if they they belong. These are all products of bourgeois nationalism of 18th and 19th centuries that arose in part again against the church. So no, no Catholic can be uncomplicatedly a nationalist. I'm not a nationalist. I think, you know, like I said, there, and in, in this idea of subsidiarity, which is so important to the Catholic church, people use that to say, well, therefore it supports nationalism. The idea is that problems should be solved at the level in which they can be solved. If the family itself can solve a problem, the state shouldn't interfere. If the state can, if the local government can solve the problem, the state shouldn't interfere. If the federal government can solve the problem, then whatever, you know, as, as it goes up. But that doesn't mean there aren't global problems demanding global solutions. Another problem is that nationalism has trouble resolving claims between disputing nationhoods, right? So, for example, you need some other larger moral frame to settle the dispute between Russia and Ukraine. Like, which of the two is in the right is something, in, if there's a more and normative answer to that, that's something that you need a higher frame than nationalism itself because it's a dispute rooted in nationalism. That said, you know, I'm sympathetic to some of these national populist governments. Uh, so, for example, insofar as they can, for example, resist, although that's it's becoming untenable now, but if they, so far as they can resist EU-style diktats whereby Brussels becomes a vehicle for German bankers preventing national governments from doing the kind of monetary easing they need to do or whatever, then yeah, as between neoliberal globalism and national conservative governments in places like Poland and Hungary and elsewhere, I will pick the latter sometimes as a sort of prudential matter, but not as an absolute good that you know, nationalism is the highest end of political life. And uh, then finally, right after the election, you tweeted that uh, you found the incoming Biden regime, as you called it, terrifying. Do you feel after this time uh, that uh, your original terror was justified? I think in so far as we've seen the interplay or the nexus between the Biden campaign and then the Biden administration and the security apparatus, not that it favored Biden, but it definitely opposed uh, the democratic will of the people as it was expressed through the Trump movement. The nexus of all of that and big tech, I continue to find that really. I terrible. mean, the Trump movement is the one who wanted to overturn the election, though. I mean, so the the clown act in like January 6th was just a, a clown act. I, I never thought there was any risk of like what, what was going to happen, like that, the, you know, they would go in and install a different government. It's all, I mean, it was, it was a, just a kind of a pathetic, I, I described it in a, in a New York Times column as a, as a corn pone intifada, but it's like, this, you know, it's, it's silly. The sort of much scarier stuff that we witnessed ever since the rise of populism, again, on both sides of the Atlantic is, you know, establishment power really consolidating the use of big tech to censor critical points of view and now, thanks to sort of the Twitter files, we're seeing that this was quite coordinated between government agencies and big tech. I was the opinion editor of the New York Post when we, we broke the Hunter Biden story. I didn't, I wasn't part of the reporting. I was the opinion guy. But, you know, what we experienced that day was pretty terrifying. So insofar as I was referring to that sort of stuff, yeah, I do find, I continue to think it's an accurate description. It may not be specific to Biden at all, but the sort of NATSEC security apparatus, big tech conglomerate that we should all be terrified of. In terms of political economy, there's a lot that I have to admit I'm very pleased by. So for example, his Federal Trade Commissioner, Lena Khan, has made some terrific moves, most recently in banning non-compete clauses. You know, he, like I said, he's kept up the tariffs. Minus the rail worker thing, there is some truth to the democratic description of him as the most pro-union president in a long time, certainly much more so than like Obama and Clinton. 
And I give him credit for that regularly. Industrial policy, the CHIPS Act. Yeah, yeah. That stuff's good. By the way, there's another point I would make is that beneath the, the apparent chaos and senility of the man himself, it's, it's actually governing very competently. It's governing very competently. I mean, the Biden administration. How large a constituency do you think there is for your, not unique, but unusual hybrid of politics? Well, I mean, I don't know if you remember the uh, this this quadrant, these, uh, this is just sort of a um, graph of where voters fall. There's like this divided votes into this, it's a scatter plot and then divides them into four quadrants. There is a quadrant that is not represented by any political party, but which is quite large. And that's people who are economically liberal. Now we say economically liberal, in this case, not classically liberal, but what it really means is economically progressive and socially conservative. But that's a really large group. I'm not saying it's the only group. There are also people who are both economically and socially progressive. But there is this chunk of people who are basically underrepresented. And populism has sought to represent their interests and views. Haltingly, nevertheless, it's tried to do that. On the other hand, the smallest group, which is almost non-existent, are libertarians. That is people who are economically, quote, conservative, meaning economically, classically liberal, and socially progressive, like so they want same-sex marriage, et cetera, et cetera. That is a tiny, tiny group, and yet it has extremely outsized influence in the media. Even at like progressive newspapers, you always have like one or two libertarian columnists, and you don't have anyone who quite represents the policy mix that I've sort of stood for, socially conservative, economically progressive. Now, we say socially conservative. Are these people like opus day trads who'd like to say the rosary every day and you know blah blah no they're like they're often unchurched they're you know they might have dysfunctional lives themselves broken families blah 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 but they have this sense that family life is good there's something worthwhile about local community that uh that they they they're not comfortable with every element of a sort of cosmocracy uh you know etc they're conservative in that sense. And I think that their aspirations should be politically honored by someone that deserves some representation. That was Sor Albamari, co-founder of Compact Magazine. He's got a book coming out on his economic views later this year, and I hope to have him back to talk about it. I take Amari's point that any society imposes some version of a moral order through law, though we differ on what it should look like. But I'm not entirely persuaded that his ideal society wouldn't be patrolled by some version of Catholic morality police, shutting down drag queen story hours for the children, of course. His praise of the Law and Justice Party in Poland, which has banned abortion and pursued homophobic and anti-immigrant policies in power, is disturbing. My socialist moral order would, among many other things, generously support people pursuing any form of sexual or gender expression or living arrangements they like. This is a fundamental value to me and not something I'd want to compromise on for political expediency. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of the sixth of the variations on a theme by Haydn, by Johannes Brahms, though contrary to Brahms's belief, the melody probably wasn't written by Haydn. Here's a bit of the version for two pianos, performed by Emanuel Axe and Yefim Bronfman. Till next week, bye.